The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, February 13th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And the Oroville Dam is holding. Rain is expected in a few days. Almost 200,000 have been evacuated from the Feather River region. But it seems like the spillway will not erode and hopefully tragedy will be averted. Now, I want you to know that 24, 36 hours ago, I would not have recognized any of the proper nouns in that sentence. Did you know the Oroville Dam is the largest in America? Really? There's only one way for us to learn a fact like that, and it's not in a good way. Like when we learned about the deadliest day since Antietam, and I didn't know, well, what was the deadliest day? Oh, it turns out maybe it was Antietam, or you heard phrases like the deadliest disaster since the General Slocum. Whenever you're learning about the deadliest day or worst loss of life in New York City, the reason you're learning about it is not a good reason. And it's this, it's the same thing with learning that the Oroville Dam was the tallest, right? We wouldn't have learned that because, hey, and we know that because it's getting a new coat of paint. Or the Orville Dam's the tallest, as we know, from that Pharrell song. Or maybe because Steph Curry and Kevin Durant were always joking about the height of the Orville Dam in Warriors post-game press conferences. That is not why we know the height of the Orville Dam. Do you think when a new guy goes to work at the Orville Dam, really at any dam, he gets a little orientation and they're like, look, Steve, you might have a genteel sensibility. Perhaps you weren't raised using crude language. But in this workplace, it's pretty important that we say fuck. Because when something goes wrong, you gotta learn to yell, holy fuck, or this is fucking dangerous. Because if you go with, this is a damn serious problem, no one knows how serious it is. We work in a damn. You can't say damn for emphasis. It's a redundancy. It's like a fireman going into the fire, yelling, fire, fire, right? Can't say damn. You know what the plan was to save the dam before what they're doing started working? I'll read this from ABC 10. The plan was to, quote, use rocks or boulders to try to shore up and prevent the on-site erosion in the spillway. According to Doug Carlson, a representative of the California Department of Water Resources, the plan is to try and drop enough rocks into the areas threatened by erosion to prevent it from degrading the spillway. Helicopters were going to drop rocks and boulders. What is this? My 10-year-old neighbor crushing my army men? Yeah, we're going to drop a boulder first. If you look at the schematic, it's going to chase Indiana Jones for a little while. And then Fred Flintstone like it'll plug a gap right there in the dam and Mr. Slate's quarry. So that seemed a little unrealistic, but an actual guy named Eric C., who was also with the Department of Water Resources, explained it better this way. Large uh, construction helicopters to uh, bring um, large um, uh, bags of, of rock into place in the, in the head cut area. Okay, helicopters and bags of rocks. That at least sounds plausible. Though Eric C. did induce a little bit of disquiet in this damn nervous viewer. This head cut is being formed by the water. I mean, it's the, it's the energy of the water that's actually creating the head cut. The head cut. Yes, we've got a head cut situation. So I looked up the head cut. Here's what it says. The head cut, also known as the nick point, where a head cut begins, can be as small as an overly steep riffle zone. The riffle zone is instrumental in the formation of a meander. What? That clarifies it. So I realized that why I was drawn to the dam controversy, the dam potential danger, and it was it was working for me. Because two days ago, I was worried about things like the Logan Act, the One China policy, 
Section 2635.702, use of public office for private gain, that act. But now all that's been crowded out with talk of spillways and riffle zones. So thanks, Orville Dam. Hold up. You damn, damn, you're providing more of a public service than you know. On the show today, you liked 2635.702? Well, I've got section 212F of USC code 1182, section F. Uh Uh-huh, that's an inducement for you. But first, how do you define resistance? How likely is an autocracy? It's all in the purview of David Frum, and he's here with some news you can use about how to save our republic. David Frum is a conservative thinker, a former White House speechwriter. He is an ideologically consistent, I'm going to say father of the Never Trump movement. Now, ideological consistency really does depend on the ideology being sound. And while Mr. Frum and I might disagree on some issues, like, I don't know, the wisdom of the Bush tax cuts, he has been a solid voice on foreign affairs and just never countenancing the odious nationalism that has swept large factions of the Republican Party and the country at large. Uh, For The Atlantic, where he's a senior editor, he wrote the cover story, How to Build an Autocracy. He also wrote What Effective Protests Could Look Like. Hello, David Frum. How are you? Thank you very much. Thanks for the hospitality. Yes, absolutely. Um, Now, so we have the Trump uh, White House, the administration, he himself or others, in the last couple days giving out these messages. If you see a poll that's bad for me, that poll is a lie. If you see news that is bad for me, that news is fake news. He's constructing a reality around himself. Now, I would look at his past and say, this is what he does. He's a hype man. He has pretty much lied with impunity about ratings and about everything from the size of his buildings. But what's the case that it can be effective and either get him reelected or get his policies passed? Well, Donald Trump is is shrewd rather than strategic. Um, he is not someone who plans ahead, and a lot of the time he is in totally unnecessary trouble because of things he has done. But he does have a survivor's instinct, and he, has, he also has an instinctive understanding of, of how to communicate. One of the things about saying things that aren't true is there's a very steeply declining marginal cost. The first time a president or a candidate for president brazenly says something that isn't true, it's, it's shocking. Uh, and the second time, it's troubling. The 83rd, 87th, 193rd time it just becomes part of how that person is. And we have seen that, and not just with the president, but also with the people around him. Um, one of the fascinations of the White House press briefing uh, that more and more people are tuning into, I understand, um, is precisely to watch the, the moral arc of Sean Spicer, who started off as sort of a regular Republican functionary and is now like the Walter White of um, <laughs> of official communication. <laughs> so – Trump is therefore saying, look, this is priced into my appeal. If if he essentially either agrees or feels in his gut what you're saying, can't hurt myself anymore by lying. But I wonder if he's right. I wonder if not in the context of running against the uh, second most unpopular candidate in presidential history, if he's right. He has his own rendezvous with history again in 2020. In the meantime, there's an election in 2018. And those two events are going to shape what he is able to get away with. Uh, For Trump himself, for his reelection, what matters is whether his um, expansive economic approach will work. And one of the things I predict in um, 
my article in The Atlantic, is is quite likely that it will. Um, fiscal expansion has negative long-term consequences. You do get inflation. Uh, but in the short term, it is, it is stimulative. And if, if you combine fiscal imp- uh, expansion with immigration restriction, as the president wants to do, you can see a wage effect. So it may be that he will be running for re-election, presiding over a growing economy with rising wages. We've had growing economies before, but it's been a long time since we've seen steadily and consistently rising wages for most people. Yeah, Wall Street thinks he's right. So what is the, if that is true, if that comes to pass, will it be a fantastic and unavoidable stumble in foreign affairs that could trip him up? I don't want to look for external events because I think that lets all of us off the hook. Um, the Trump election and the Trump presidency is a challenge to Americans to live up to their best selves. What made Donald Trump possible? The disengagement from politics, um, the malfunctioning of political institutions, um, excessive ideology in the Republican Party, excessive hackery in the Democratic Party. Um, what is ena- making enabling him right now is the inability of potential opposition forces to get organized. What I'm struck by is their lack of focus and discipline um, and their parochial partisan squabbling. Um, one of the things that was just very striking at the Women's March on Washington, um, that uh, pro-life groups are not allowed to participate in any official way. You think, well, why not? This is not, you know, I understand if you feel strongly about abortion and abortion rights, you wouldn't want to include them. But you're talking about something else. No, 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 we can't, we can't drop our last quarrel just because we have a new problem. And that raises the question, well, how seriously should I take you then when you say that you think Donald Trump is a Trump is a threat to democracy? He's not such a big threat that you're going to um, want to share a platform with someone who disagrees with you about abortion. So how big a threat can he be? And you see that again and again. If if he is a great threat to democracy, as I believe, as I argue in The Atlantic, um, people have to put aside a lot of their politics. I mean, I'm doing that. I, I probably agree with Donald Trump more than um, even most Republicans do uh, on immigration. Um, I tend to share a lot of his views. Uh, I think the Republican Party has gotten, you know, too plutocratic in its economic policies. And um, I, I welcome his openness to uh, a more universal approach to healthcare coverage. But agreeing with Trump on the issues does not make Trump acceptable as a Democratic figure. And those who disagree with Trump on the issue should be as disciplined as that, too. Yeah, on my show, I criticize the 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 squabbling and the uh, insistence on intersectionality of the march. And yet I attended the march mostly because my son wanted to go. And I thought it was a fantastic success. And the one quibble I would have with your, uh, you, you wrote about this in your piece too, is the exclusion of uh, pro-life activists. And I will say you made an excellent point, which is where were the police women on the stage? Where were members of military on the stage? Yes, exactly. And why was Madonna on the stage opining about blowing up the White House? I agree with you down the line. But as far as the pro-life part of it, I would say, you know, at some point you have to say, if this is a march for women, what does that mean other than gender? We stand for something. And this is the bright line we stand for. And I think in a non-hack, to use your phrase, kind of way, that actually redounds to the march organizers, um, that, that redounds to their credit. You know this wonderful term the economists have, revealed preference. Mm -hmm. Do you like strawberries better than blueberries? Well, you don't really know. But uh, when I call on you, how many – will you trade three blueberries for one strawberry? And you do, you reveal your preference. Uh, Something like that is going on right now. We're all having to reveal our preferences. Um, And if your preference is is that you think abortion is more important than Donald Trump's threat to American democracy – then, okay, I, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. It's your preference. You're entitled to it. But you understand you have revealed a preference. 
And that the revelation of that preference may undercut your statements about your other preferences. Because if it really is true that you won't stand with a pro-life person against Donald Trump, then I have to tell you, Donald Trump is not something that's worrying you that much. If Marco Rubio were the president right now, you'd have exactly the same concerns about about abortion that you do. You want to tell me that you think of Donald Trump as something different from Marco Rubio, and yet you're behaving in exactly the same way as if Marco Rubio were president. I think especially those of us who have the privilege and good fortune to be able to engage a lot with the life of the mind, that one of the um, important duties we have is to bring, especially for ourselves, our thoughts and our actions into, into harmony. And if you believe certain things about Donald Trump, then your actions have to follow. And if your actions uh, don't follow, then you have to stop saying those things about Donald Trump. Okay, well, let's talk about the idea of if Marco Rubio or if Ted Cruz or if someone was a president, what we might have is similar policies, but without the bluster, but also without the what has been to re- been revealed to be gross incompetence. Here are my two questions about Trump administration incompetence. One, is it a feature or a bug? And two, will it be the undoing or the salvation of our republic? Easy questions. Uh, administrations often get off to rocky starts. Uh, I remember the start of the Clinton administration. Um, it was, it just, it didn't go that well. Um, Trump's is a little rockier, uh, than some. It's not unpardonably rocky. And I, I think what you'll discover is over time, the tendency will be for the incompetence to shake out, uh, but for the malevolence to not go away. I am not worried about this administration's bluster, uh, because again, if they had a softer tone and that I'm sure in time they will, it wouldn't make things better. I'm worried here. I'm worried about the administration's kleptocratic tendencies. I'm worried about its attack on uh, the whole Western security system. And I'm worried about, because the president is both going to run, I would say the, probably the most corrupt administration in American history. And because he is going to run an administration, he's already running one that is um, attacking America's most fundamental alliances and um, economic arrangements, the world trading system. And because both of those things are going to be so rejected by so many elements in American society, those two desires are going to lead them toward an ever more authoritarian approach to politics. I don't give you bonus marks for being good at authoritarianism. Has there, have there been examples where an authoritarian tendency has been undercut by incompetence? Like would Berlusconi have been truly authoritarian if he cared to be? American authoritarianism, the kind of things I worry about with Donald Trump are not police statism. They are, uh, the corrosion of checks on the power of the presidency and the power of government. And one of the things I am concerned about is that a lot of people have an out-of-date model or mental image of authoritarianism based on things they've seen in movies and documentaries about the 1930s. But it's not going to be like that anymore. You know, Viktor Orban, who's the um, prime minister who's presided over the de-democratization of Hungary. Hungary's an EU member, a signatory to the European Charter of Human Rights. He has never wrongfully arrested anybody. And yet, Hungary has, in most indexes, fallen from the fully free category when we became prime minister to semi-free today. The most important benefit of politicizing law enforcement is not persecuting the innocent. It is protecting the guilty. That's the power that really works. Because if Donald Trump were to tell the FBI to arrest a political opponent, they just they just wouldn't do it. And if he found somebody to do it, there'd be a habeas corpus decree and the courts would liberate that person and everybody would obey. And it would take decades of authoritarian rule to break down the court system. But what you can do much more easily, and you can do this just by putting in some friendly U.S. attorneys, is you can say, we want to direct prosecutorial resources where they're going to do the most good. So we want them to go over here 
and not over there. Now, we don't want you to prosecute anybody who's innocent, but just, you know, not over there. And that is much easier to do. And that's very, very valuable. So in your book, Dead Right, you wrote about, and this was years ago. In fact, William F. Buckley gave it high praise. So that sort of dates it. Um, You wrote about how you never know what the people will consent to until you get in there and push it. And I'm wondering, since you wrote that, if you've rethought that in the context of Trump, since he defines or says he defines, you know, consent or what the will of the people is in his own way, and since he doesn't adhere to norms, what does that insight really mean currently? Uh, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a great point and a great question. Um, there, is, there is a kind of an experimentational quality uh, to politics, and Donald Trump is experimenting with things. You know, when I worked for President Bush, we had a staff of researchers and, you know, we would go through, I mean, any document, every name had to be double checked, every place, uh, every every statistic we used was, um, was checked because we thought it would be really a big deal if we said, you know, in, industrial production in Michigan went up by 6.2% of the last quarter and the real number was 5.9. Uh, heads would roll. Things would happen. And Donald Trump has proven that's not really true, actually, that, that there aren't consequences for that kind of mistake. Well, that's a, that's a new piece of learning and it will be applied. Okay. So how do the people of goodwill or the people who are rational or the people who are like you, conservative who can't believe where the country has gone, people like me, uh, moderate type Democrats who can't believe, who can understand why people would vote for Republicans, but not this one. How do we know progress is being made, that Trump is hurting himself, that the pendulum of um, either of, of his agenda is ticking towards the uh, negative rather than the positive? Well, my advice is to pick a very limited number of very concrete issues that go to the heart of what is different about Donald Trump. Um, and to focus enormous resources on those. And the two that I am recommending to everybody are, one, um, a law requiring the Treasury to release the income tax returns of the president and the vice president. That's completely constitutional. Um, And uh, the second is an independent uh, uh, investigation of foreign manipulation and activities in the 2016 election, headed by distinguished bipartisan senior people with intelligence backgrounds. And uh, the, na- the two names that come to my mind are Madeleine Albright and Michael Chertoff. Madeleine Albright having been Secretary of State, of course, under President Clinton, Michael Chertoff, head of Homeland Security under President Bush, um, and get to the bottom of it. Those two things are the things that uh, one catches the kleptocracy and the other catches the foreign interference. And if you can stop both of those, then you can thwart the tendency toward authoritarianism because the authoritarianism exists not as an end in itself, but as a means to protect Donald Trump from the consequences of corruption and Russian involvement. The, the idea of the blue ribbon panel, um, the the foreign influences, who would commission that? Would it be the House? Would it be the Congress. Senate? Uh, the way that we set up the 9-11 commission. Yes, but the that, Warren was commission. Supported, that was supported by the president. So when you, if you have presidential opposition, you'd need just the majority of each house to say, let's do this. Well, the president can, can veto it. I mean, you then no, you, if the president opposes it, you, then you would need uh, two-thirds of both yeah. houses. Um, so it's, it's a big reach. But the, what, what I find about these things is you don't have to win. You really don't have to win to make the point. Um, if the president vetoes a law calling for him to release his tax returns, <laughs> that's you don't have to win. You just have to focus. But what you mustn't do, and this is the thing, again, I, I observe that the Judean People's Front hates the People's Liberation Front of Judea. <laughs> you know, I just have to say, I mean, if you really believe that the country is in as much danger as you say and as I think, you have to submerge those tendencies for a little bit and work in a disciplined fashion 
put it unlimited effort toward limited goals. And they have to be the right goals. And that is David Frum with his message, always look on the bright side of life. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe I'm getting the wrong Python-esque phrase. It's, no, that's David Frum saying the only reason he was on his perch is he had been nailed there. Thank you very much. Thanks for the talk. Bye-bye. And now the spiel. When I call Steve Miller a weasel, it's not necessarily an insult. An otter is a weasel, and everyone likes otters. But a badger is also a weasel, and Steve Miller does that. A wolverine, that's a weasel. And like the plot of that movie, Stephen Miller believes that the United States faces an imminent invasion from foreigners, which must be resisted by Force Cunning and Patrick Swayze. Miller, the 31-year-old White House advisor who came to the Trump campaign as a Jeff Sessions employee and the most anti-immigration aide in the U.S. Senate, was on the shows, was on all the shows on Sunday, and he engaged in banter raging from sophistry to palaver with hints of alarmism, misdirection, and false choices. One great tactic that Miller trotted out was to cite actual criminal codes. He did it on This Week. The president has the power under the INA, Section 212F, 8 U.S.C., 1182F. And he also did it on Meet the Press. It's a great question, and I'll answer it in full. First of all, we know that the 1952 law, and you're referring to is 212F, 8 U.S.C., 1182F, because if it didn't happen. Now, when a 1952 law down to the subsection is cited, the impression is, wow, this guy must know the law. But perhaps the impression should be, wow, this guy can memorize alphanumeric sequences for a show. And at this point, either Chuck or George needed to have at their fingertips one counterpoint, which would have gone like this. All right, let's play Stephen Miller again. And you're referring to is 212F, 8 USC, 1182F. Aha, aha. But as you know, Stephen, as you no doubt know, that 1952 statute was, of course, amended by 8 U.S.C. 1152-A-1 in the Immigration Act of 1965. Aha! And that precludes the executive from engaging in broad-based immigration bans due to national origin. Now, at this point, you might have gone statute-to-statute rejoinder. But you also would have had something else on your hands. Just a terrible talk show. And the perpetuation of Stephen Miller on these talk shows seemed to be the major policy initiative of Stephen Miller being on these talk shows. He wasn't there to explain U.S. policy towards North Korea. He certainly wasn't there to answer questions concerning Mike Flynn's pre-inauguration discussions with the Russians. General Flynn has served this country admirably and with distinction. He's a three-star general. He served in the Defense Intelligence Agency. There's no information that I have as the policy director for this White House to contribute any new information to this story this morning. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's just where things stand. Stephen Miller wouldn't answer that question. But man, was he eager to get asked back on Meet the Press. I counted three times on ABC's This Week where he said, I'd love to discuss this some more, but four times on Meet the Press where he essentially asked for a rebooking. My views on this issue have been well-discussed and well-publicized, and I'd love to have a conversation with you to get into them in great detail. I look forward to having more discussions about this in the future. And Chuck, I will be glad to come back on your show when that's done and walk you through how we've kept our country safe across the board, and I look forward to having a conversation with you All right. once you've had a chance to talk with the appropriate people in the White House who are dealing with this matter. Chuck, maybe we can even debut a segment called Stephen Chuck Get Stuck, where we go around and around in a circle citing federal law to each other. Or how about Steve Won't Leave? 
where I parry away all your attempts to admonish, correct, or move on in any way from my segment. I will admit that if you are judging Stephen Miller, the Stephen Miller onslaught, if you are judging it against this standard, did Stephen Miller achieve the goal he set out to? You'd have to say yes. He, in a rapid fire, unyielding, often unfair and untruthful manner, he got his points out there. They were something close to the best version of his argument. Now, it should tell you something about the argument that it relies on false choices like these. And the bottom line right. is this. In the calculation between, between open borders and saving American lives, it is the easiest choice we will ever have to make. Well, that's not the choice. No one would choose to allow in 100 immigrants knowing they'd be responsible for 40 murders. Duh. And it's not the case that more immigrants equals more dead non-immigrants, even though the Trump campaign works hard at showing us the families whose children have been killed by an immigrant. True, there are 11 million illegal immigrants in the United States, and 11 million people will commit some acts of murder that will also help society greatly. Good stats are hard to come by on the crime that immigrants commit, but the best seem to indicate, and I'll just quote the Center for Immigration Studies, which is against any form of amnesty for illegal immigrants, and they say, quote, there's no evidence that immigrants are either more or less likely to commit crimes than anyone else in the population. But listen to the numbers Stephen Miller cites. And if we remove 10 criminal aliens, and we end up saving as a result of that one or two or three or four American lives, then that is something that is magnificent. Well, yes. If for every 10 immigrants, there were four dead Americans, well, then yes, we'd all be against immigration. In fact, it would be as controversial as being for or against serial killers. But since those aren't the numbers, that's not the argument. And that's what Steve Miller provided. An aggressive, rambunctious, but hard to pin down flurry of rhetoric, but not actual evidence. Though he did provide one real insight to me was kind of a throwaway line to John Dickerson of Face the Nation. It's been pretty busy up there. Just stepping back, do you feel like you and your staff there that you're in control of events at the White House? I think to say that we're in control would be a substantial understatement. This suggests the seeds to the Trump administration's Achilles heel. The administration wants to sow chaos to show that it is in control of the chaos. More events like the debacle over the executive order on immigration or more actual criminal investigations and say General Flynn and the Logan Act or Kellyanne Conway and her Ivanka Trump commercial. It will undermine this White House trying to desperately advance the fiction that it is in control, that it firmly grasps the issues and is not sadly grasping at straws all the while yelling at Sunday shows, but hoping for an invite back. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson, who's definitely rooting against disaster, but did have the damn shame headline all ready to go. Also produced by Chris Berube, who notes that a riffle can cause a meander, but so too can a tipple cause a full-fledged blackout. Steve Lichta, I, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, proposes that the spillway be changed to the poor way, so they could argue, well, we're in control of this whole process. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, holidays in the Feather River Basin, all the way from East Biggs to East Gridley. The gist, I propose a damn warning alert system from the lowest, don't give a damn, up to worth a damn, hot damn, goddamn, and finally, damned if you don't. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.